Hello, this is Harry Thomason, and welcome to The Story You Never Heard, executive produced by Benji Gaither and Douglas Jackson. On this podcast, we'll tell you stories about the world, your country, your people, and things that happened long ago and not so long ago. Stories you probably never heard until now. Here's tonight's tale. The Incident in Nashville In Nashville, on a pleasantly cool morning of July the 9th, 1918, David Campbell Kennedy, a railroad engineer, walked toward work like he did every other morning when he was on duty. He could have taken a streetcar, but he loved the walk. He carried with him his railroader's box, which included a change of clean clothes, work gloves, a mason jar filled with brewed coffee, and a brass cloth. At the same time, Locomotive 281, controlled by engineer Bill Lloyd, designated as Train 1, an overnight express from Memphis, was 30 miles west, barreling full steam toward Nashville. His fireman, Thomas Kelly, on the Memphis Overnighter, asked engineer Lloyd if he was really retiring like he planned, and Lloyd responded, You have my word, son. This is Kelly's last run. World War I was underway, and Train 1, like most other trains across the country, had been taken over by the federal government for the war effort. The train was crowded. Passengers on the overnight Memphis train included two cars filled with more than 125 African-American workers traveling from various southern states. they just signed on with U.S. Employment Service the previous morning and were traveling to help manufacture war munitions at the munitions plant in Old Hickory. Meanwhile, back in Nashville, Kennedy arrived at the station and met his conductor, James Shorty Eubanks, and his fireman, Jim Meadows, outside the telegraph office, waiting for orders for train four. Kennedy noticed a group of young military recruits all wanting to board his train four, but it was already overbooked, and only five of the recruits would be unlucky enough to get taken. After receiving orders and heading for their train, fireman Jim Meadows glanced at his railroad pocket watch and told Kennedy, It looks like we might be late meeting number seven at Hardy. By the time train four was ready to leave the station, they were only five minutes behind schedule. Kennedy placed his railroad clock on the centerboard shelf and started to build steam. He noted that it was almost 7 a.m. as he pushed the throttle and engine 282 pulling train four started slowly moving out of the station. Engine 282 was built for the railway in 1906. The train cars were all made of wood, a bit of a rarity at that time, considering newer passenger trains, including cars and coaches that were made of steel. To save money, the railroad bosses and stockholders had decided against replacing the older wooden cars with metal. Kennedy handed over train four's orders to his fireman Meadows as they left the station. Meet number seven at Harding Station to pick up the mail, Meadows read aloud, then continued. Number one being hauled by engine 281, hold at double tracks until number one passes. Now, ironically, engine 281, train one, was a sister engine of Kennedy's train four's engine 282. The porter, George Hall, and conductor, Shorty Eubanks, were performing their duties. Eubanks told Hall, I sure am busy, George. I should be watching for the number one to go by, but I only picked up tickets in two coaches. This train is terribly full, and I don't have that much time to get through the rest of it. Hall understood. Don't worry about watching for number one, boss. I'll keep an eye peeled for her. 
This is also a task that some of the other crew were performing as well, including the trained fireman Meadows up in the locomotive camp. Engineer Kennedy was rolling slowly down the tracks at 7.07 a.m. as the Nashville Chattanooga St. Louis Railroad train port departed Union Station bound for Memphis. They were just southwest of Nashville's Union Station and nearing an area known as Shop Junction, one of the largest and most important train yards in the South. Meanwhile, Train 1 with Bill Lloyd at controls was headed toward Nashville at 60 miles an hour. It pulled one baggage car, six wooden coaches, and two Pullman sleeping cars of steel construction. Both trains, number one and number four, required the use of a single track section approximately 10 miles long in the western portion of Nashville. According to standard practices, the inbound train, number one, retained the right-of-way. Thus, the radio dispatcher informed the crew of Kennedy's outgoing number four train that they were to stop in the double-track section if they did not visually identify the passing train one before they reached Shops Junction, where the railroad's main line track to Memphis narrowed to just a single track. While train four traversed the double-track section, the conductor Eubanks delegated the responsibility of identifying train one to the remainder of the crew. While collecting tickets, Eubanks mistook the sound of a passing switch engine with empty passenger cars as train number one. The rest of the crew either made the same error or were negligent in properly identifying the train. As train four approached a single track at Shop Junction, the tower operator, J.S. Johnson, showed a clear signal from the tower's train order signals indicating all was clear. As he stopped to record the train in his logs, he noticed something odd. There was no entry showing that incoming train number one had passed. Johnson frantically reported this to the dispatcher who telegraphed him back equally frantic. He meets number one there. Can you stop him? At the time, there was no direct communication with the engineers in either train, only the giant loud warning whistle used for emergencies. The whistle blared and it blared, but the outgoing train was too far along for anyone to hear it. Johnson continued to frantically sound the emergency whistle, but there was no one at the rear of the number four to hear them. Some railroad employees were now running after the train. Stop, please stop, as the train eased onto the single track, assuming the line ahead was clear. Shortly, the trains were closing the distance between each other, one at 60 miles an hour and the other one at 50 miles per hour for a combined speed of 110 miles an hour. As his train number four came around the curb, Engineer Kennedy saw smoke rising above a newly built bridge, smoke that he knew didn't belong to his locomotive. He quickly jumped from his seat, pulling the emergency brake and saying a prayer. But it was too little, too late. One minute later, at 7.20 a.m., July the 9th, 1918, with deafening sound of wheels of both trains screeching on rails trying to stop, the two trains collided at Dutchman's Curve near White Bridge Road. The sound could be heard over three miles away. The ground quaked and the waters of nearby Richland Creek trembled, one rider later related. He continued, the wooden cars crumbled and hurled sideways, hanging over the embankment. One train telescoped the other. When the locomotives struck each other at a combined speed of almost 110 miles per hour, both of the locomotives shot upward into the air, 
with burning coal flying throughout the calves, the nearby grounds, and steaming hot water spilling down to the ground as the boilers were ripped off from the wheels below, spraying everybody and everything with boiling steam. As for the rest of the cars, it didn't go anywhere. Some of the cars were pushed through the others, leaving no way to survive, and pretty much demolishing the cars themselves, plus anything in their past. One of the coaches on train one was carrying most of the black passengers due to start work at the munitions factory the next day. It went through the baggage car in front of it, unfortunately pinning the men and women inside. Between the walls of the two cars, other cars ended up piled high in the air. The screams were almost unimaginable, then silence. From the number four train, the cars derailed into the surrounding cornfields, splintering into slivers of wood with some of the metal undercarriages smashing into nearby telephone poles, disabling phones in the area for days. The people that witnessed the disaster, like sisters and children at St. Mary's Orphanage, the crew of the number seven train waiting nearby at Harding Station, Local farmers in their fields and even motors driving over the bridge all came running, hoping to help in any way they could and with any tools they had. Debris was flung all over the cornfields, causing fires to break out in several locations. Bodies, body parts, and injured passengers were scattered around the scene in such a horrific fashion that some of the rescuers could only just fall to the ground, crying and praying. The Tennessean, the national newspaper, reported the next day there had been 121 fatalities. Though the final number given by the Interstate Commerce Commission was 101 fatalities and another 100 plus seriously injured. Most of the fatalities were the African-American workers traveling to the Old Hickory and young soldiers headed for the battlegrounds of Europe. Both engineers, David Kennedy and Bill Lloyd, were killed instantly. It was the day that Bill Lloyd was to retire. The investigation that fathered the train wreck cited human error, specifically blaming the man who could not defend himself, the engineer of the outbound train, David Kennedy. The national wreck to this day is still the deadliest train accident in the history of the United States. Well, that's our story for tonight, and we hope you will join us next week for another story you never heard. We hope you found it interesting. If this is your first time here, why not check out the rest of our catalog? We've been at this for about a year now and have some great stories in previous episodes. If you like what you hear, be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and leave us a review wherever you're listening. You can find us on almost any platform, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or any other. If you'd like to help us as we research and write more exciting episodes, please consider going to our home base at anchor.fm slash T-S-Y-N-H and clicking on the support button. You can help by contributing as little as 99 cents a month. Consider it, but if you can't do it, that's okay, because we'll always be free. And we appreciate each and every one of you and thank you for giving us your time each week. And we'll see you next week with a brand new story you never heard. Have a good night, everyone. Come visit us on the web at thestoryyouneverheard.com and facebook.com slash T-S-Y-N-H. This show is executive produced by Benji Gaither and Douglas Jackson. 
Our technical consultant and website administrator is John Balderston, and Justin Nichols is our editor.